Okay, hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. Tim, happy 2023. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year, Adam. I hope uh, you had a good holiday and you're ready to watch some more movies. Uh, I never stop. I'm just uh, <laughs> just watching just watching all the time. It's... Uh, it's quite the little video drum up in here on Snake Mountain, so to speak. But uh, okay. anyway, <laughs> strange. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with chest VCRs and everything. It's uh, it's a real it's a real cinerama, as they say. Yeah, Debbie Harry's popping out of your TV as we speak, or oh, it, all the all the time. Isn't isn't she dead? Unfortunately, didn't Debbie? No, I don't think she's so. still alive. Is it, was it somebody else from Blondie that died? could have been so many people have died lately it's kind of depressing it so is so, yeah. let's, so, so let's talk about a movie about <laughs> the inevitability of death let's that's, talk about it right that's here. right that's right and credits is a local movie show for local movie fans we're here every wednesday at 3 p.m to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies which this week will be the new and i'm reading the wikipedia description of this uh the absurdist comedy drama white noise which you can now stream on netflix and that's yeah. gonna oh did you have something to add to absurdist comedy drama yeah i think it's sort of uncategorizable so they use absurdist when they don't know what to say i think i think that's correct yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's in the back half of the show for the first half uh we talk about movies or movie news um before the break um great timing by the way sight and sound uh give us something to talk about just as we run out of time to talk about it but sight and sound uh delivered their i think they do it every 10 years is that right they refresh the list yeah. every 10 years yeah every decade yeah yeah uh their list of the best 100 movies of all time um and and tim can correct me if i get any of this wrong they do do it every 10 years and basically they give 50 picks to the critics. They give 50 picks to notable directors, people like uh, Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese and, and um, people like the experts, let's say. Um, and then they compile the list. It's, I believe it's technically what we would call ranked voting in the political sphere where every critic submits their 10 and then they compile all the picks and then the the, the movie with the most on the most number of lists is number one, and then the second most, number two, and and so on and so forth. I'm I'm, I'm explaining all this correctly, right? Yeah, I think mostly it's um, they have a critics list and they have a director's list, right? And the, uh, every critic that's invited and every director is invited do a top ten list, right? It's by invite, that, yeah, yeah, and from that they take the top one hundred. And there's been a lot of shifts in the last ten years. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think due to the times we live in and uh, people trying to be more inclusive, I think in their top 10 list. Um, That's right. So there've been a lot of changes, but yeah, for years it was Citizen Kane, like every decade it was Citizen Kane until, well, not at the start. I think it was Bicycle Thieves, the first. Yeah. Bicycle poll. Thief. Yeah. Yeah. A and then it was Citizen Kane until 2012 when Vertigo mm -hmm. took the top spot. Mm -hmm. And now there's a completely new one this year, uh, mm -hmm. Gene Dealman, mm -hmm. um, Belgian film by Chantal Ackerman, took mm -hmm. the number one spot. 
but yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. And some people are more serious with their lists than others. Um, <laughs> I saw, <laughs> I saw, um, Michael Snow, who unfortunately just passed away, famous Canadian artist known for, uh, really experimental film. His best known film wavelength was a 45 minute zoom mm-hmm. in a room uh, into a poster. Um, I saw his list on Sight and Sound's Twitter, and he picked Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush and then three of his own films as his top four <laughs> right before he died. There you go. So, well, um, I, I appreciate the hutzpah. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> even even Martin Scorsese, who has like competitively like real real options when it comes to selecting things, just didn't, you know, go with one of his. But, um, yeah, so there's obviously a lot of because film Twitter uh, is so easily triggered with these lists, so, <laughs> a lot of discourse around it. So we're we're approaching the sight and sound list thusly, and if you want to see the whole list, it's easy enough to find. But um, we're taking it by three categories. So we're going to talk about the movie that fell off the list in 2022, but maybe shouldn't have, and then we're going to talk about a movie that was not on the list has maybe never been on the list um but should be and then we're going to talk about the new addition to the list that will likely stand the the course of time that you know when we look at the list in 2072 let's say it it has the best chance of maybe being still on there so uh we're going to work in that order so tim why don't you begin by your selection for the movie that fell off the sight and sound list but should have stayed on it. Yeah, thanks, Adam. So for all these categories, two movies came to my mind immediately. Mm-hmm. I'll just talk about one and maybe just briefly mention the honorable mention. But for me, the movie that fell off the list that shouldn't have is Raging Bull, mm. Martin Scorsese. Um, yeah, and How the Mighty Have Fallen. It was number 53 on the 2012 list, and now it's completely off the 2022 list. Mm. And I feel like there's been, it's kind of fallen in favor over the last two, three decades, uh, because there's a cross section of critics in the eighties who picked raging bull as the best movie of the 1980s. Mm. Uh, it's often been considered Martin, Martin Scorsese's masterpiece or one of his masterpieces. I've, I've always thought that the reputation was a bit inflated. Uh, I do like taxi driver, I think Taxi Driver is a better film. Mm. I have a personal preference for Mean Streets. Mm. But Raging Bull is amazing cinema. Um, so, And it was on the director's list again, but not on the critics' list. Um, I just think it'll probably come back on again eventually. Mm. Uh, it's just, I think Martin Scorsese, at his best as a filmmaker in a lot of ways, the cinematography, the black and white cinematography is amazing. The fight scenes are so realistic and yet poetic, mm. um, slow motion, sped up, graphic violence. Uh, it, I know it was compared to Rocky at the time because it came out a few years after Rocky. It had the same producer as Rocky. That's right. And, and I really like Rocky, but the fight scenes in Raging Bull seem a lot more realistic right you know those rocky scenes where he gets punched in the face a hundred times you know um and he still goes on i aren't very realistic but raging bull has that 
So there's like realism, but sort of like a poetry to the visuals. And I think it has two of the best acting performances in Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta and Joe Pesci as his brother, Joey. And one of the best scenes you're going to see, and I'm sure it's studied, a lot of actors study it as a two-hander, the scene where Jake LaMotta uh, accuses his brother, Joey, of sleeping with his wife. And mm. it just shows the jealousy of the man, um, the pride, the ego. And I can understand why this film maybe fell off the list because it's such a male-dominated film, right? And mm. we're in different times now. But I think you're not going to find a better portrait of male toxicity, <laughs> of, yeah, of just male ego, pride, and the destructive nature of that. Hmm. And uh, number two on my list, and it, it, probably for similar reasons, it's fallen off the list, is Godfather Part 2. Mm-hmm. That's my honorable mention. Nice. Um, yeah. So I didn't include it because Godfather's still on there, but <laughs> to me, Godfather Part 2 is the better film. Um, I like both of them, but I just think Al Pacino's even that much better. John Cazale is Fredo. Those mm-hmm. scenes, Fredo, you broke my heart. It's just... Just amazing acting and Robert De Niro, and he won the Academy Award for it, learning Italian, speaking fluent Italian throughout <laughs> it as a young Vito Corleone. Like that's that's amazing. And once again, it's male dominated though. Diane Keaton's amazing in it, Talia Shire's amazing, but it once again it's this movie sort of about problems with that sort of male pride, ego, power. Um and it's fallen off too, unfortunately. But at least the original still on there. Yeah, so it was that, also it, it was also an, sort of like a, an original concept. It was prequel and sequel combined. It was, yeah. It was it, it really an amazing film. And then, like, think of Francis Ford Coppola back then, nineteen seventy four. He did that movie and the conversation. Same year. Like, yeah, it, it's amazing. Like how much people were getting done back then, you know. <laughs> Like I don't, the drugs probably played a good part of it, the cocaine and all that. But cocaine's um, a great motivator. Yeah, 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 great motivator. But yeah, nowadays it builds up the hype. But you know, you wait sometimes three, four, five, <laughs> six years for these great directors to make a film, right? So. Well, yeah, and you know the whole thing about you know these sort of coke fueled shoots like Taxi Driver too. Um, you couldn't get away with that with social media because it would take like one PA on Twitter like I'm on the set of Taxi Driver right now and everyone's <laughs> everyone's <laughs> like, high on goofballs. Um, <laughs> all right, for my uh, my pick for a movie that fell off the list but shouldn't is Lawrence of Arabia. Um, yeah, it's you know the the majesticness of this movie, the epicness, it's almost four hours long. And, you know, typically you see it with an intermission, but um, it's, it's never, it, it never slouches. It's, it's high drama. It's high art. Um, just like the, the, the all, all the things that this movie takes off. It's like Peter O'Toole and his breakthrough performance. He was largely a theater actor and uh, he, he had done a few movies, but this was his first lead role. And he knocks it out of the park. This is like David Lean in the middle of his tri- his trifecta. He does Bridge Over the River Kwai. Then he does this. And then he does Dr. Zhivago. Um, this is... Uh, it, it continues to be so inspirational. I, you know, Steven Spielberg talks about, like, before he makes a movie, one of the two or three movies he watches is Lawrence of Arabia. So it's like this, like, kind of, like, imagination fuel, this, like, filmmaker fuel that that he 
sort of injects into his eyes before going out and making a movie. People have quoted it as an inspiration for Prometheus, for Mad Max Fury Road, for Dune, and you can see that influence on screen. Um, it just, you know, it's 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 everywhere, and 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 they still run it like the Cineplex. The the Cineplex, I can't remember what the company is that does these revival screenings at Cineplex, but you do see Lawrence of Arabia pop up every now and then as like one of these special screenings they do. So it's it's like it's still out there. It's still relevant, and I I like you. Uh, there's kind of a social quality to this, like the whole white savior complex thing. That's I, I think that plays probably maybe a, a role, and it's diminishing. But I I think it still stands up. I mean, it's also history. This is you know stuff that actually happened, maybe a bit embellished and patch patched up in places. But uh, T H Lawrence was a real guy, so you know it. Yeah. It, 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 Oh, sorry to interrupt, but it's amazing. No, no, I, I, I was, I was about petered out myself, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, like, yeah, the, the shift to, because uh, I always remember Lawrence Arabia. Everyone would always say yeah, that's top five film of all time, and yeah, for it to just completely drop off the list is mm-hmm. pretty amazing, and it kind of shows that, like, when people give top ten lists and they're, you know, it's it's tough to actually turn that into a top one hundred list. Yeah, it'd probably be better, but you get way less uh, people responding if they did their own top 100 list or something, because <laughs> then you could include you could say, OK, I've included this to represent this. I, you know, I want to put a horror movie in and it's at number 21 or number mm-hmm. 18 or something. You know, I do wonder um, for how many people if you if it was to be like extended to a top 20 and you're submitting a top 20, if that like brings it back up onto the list because i imagine there are probably a lot of critics and directors and things for whom it's like maybe getting past the initial consideration of the 10 it's maybe 11 12 13 on you know who knows how many lists so yeah that's a good point i I would think so yeah Yeah. i think you know people had their uh had their favorites like even if i did my own top 10 i'm thinking like Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. I, just the more I watch it, the more I like it. And it's like a lot of people. And so it's so high on the list now, but mm-hmm. you put a new movie like that on, what do you take off? Right. Well, so. speaking of never getting on the list, um, we're going to do the number two pick, which is the movie that is not on the list, but should be. So Tim, what, what are you putting on the list that should be there? Yeah, so two movies came to mind again. The main one that came to mind for me is John Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence, Mm -hmm. which I've only seen a couple of times, and it's definitely one of the more powerful movies I've ever seen. Um, And it's just great, great acting again. Um, It comes across improvisational, but you wonder. Sometimes people say that, but it is scripted. Mm. I know Peter Falk signed on because he loved the script. And Jenna Rollins is amazing. It's one of the best screen performances I've seen. Uh, it takes on takes on mental illness in a really frank way, um, and it takes on the pressures of women, um, especially in the '70s. She's a housewife with kids. Um, she she has health concerns, but still, she's expected to. Like there's a scene where Peter Falk, who works uh, works in like construction and he repairs water mains and stuff, he comes back with his whole crew to have 
it's like middle of the day. So it's like too early for dinner. It's like have lunch or dinner or something mm. brings a whole crew. There's like 15 guys with them. And she's like, Oh, I'll make you spaghetti. But she's just under this pressure. So, uh, <laughs> a woman under the influence, uh, you could say that, but a woman under pressure, immense pressure. And I think it's it just, it's just an amazing, amazing acting, especially between the two of them as the mm. married couple, Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins. Uh, it, it just comes across, it comes across like you're, you know, you're watching great acting, but it's still realistic in the same way. So it's heightened and realistic. And there's these long takes where, you know, you might watch it if you're used to high octane films, it's like, well, what's really happening here. They're just having, having lunch or, you know, um, they're just talking to her after she, she comes back. Uh, from the hospital and stuff and you're like but there's so much so much on so many layers underneath when it comes to the acting and this movie um i don't yeah i don't think it's ever made the critics list but the directors seem to appreciate it because in 2012 it was number 59 and in 2022 it's already climbed to number 19 on the director's list uh i think a problem too with cassavetti's movies is people like want to say oh, i want to select a cassavetti's movie <laughs> yeah and so there are a number to choose from and criterion has box, done box sets in the past where they're all together so it's like they're all on equal footing and mm-hmm. i've seen other cassavetti's movies that i've liked but this is a woman under the influence by far is better than any of them i think and it deserves attention and it is getting attention in the director's poll just doesn't seem to be in the critics poll mm. and there might be things where Oh, it's too long because I know it's like two and a half hours. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe the camera work. Like I could see critics because critics can often get hung up really on the aesthetics too, right? But it's funny. You think directors would be more interested in that, but I think the directors are seeing, you know, the acting and the fact that you know maybe there's a, cam- a shaky camera here, but that's fine. It it brings you in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I just think yeah, it's one of the best movies i've ever seen and i definitely recommend it to people it was so powerful first time i watched it i didn't watch it again but i watched i i have watched it a second time and i think it's it's an amazing film Mm -hmm. and the um other one which is a a 180 from that that Mm -hmm. i think should be on the list so woman under the influence i've only watched a couple of times so this movie i've watched probably 20 30 times is pulp fiction Mm. I watch it like every year. And to me, from my sensibility, it's like one of the most entertaining movies I've ever seen. And I never tire of it. Um, There's probably things like with Quentin Tarantino. uh, There's the scene with him near the end where he's throwing around the N word, which can be kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. But there's probably reasons not to pick it given, but I just think it's, one of the best movies and I always watch it's one of the only movies I watch like every year I make a point of watching it Mm. uh and it didn't even really get a sniff even if it was at the bottom of the list like I think eventually it will be because it's such a great film so that's my honorable mention yeah it's I mean it's one of those films that had influence that goes far beyond it too I think Pulp Fiction is like like Lawrence of Arabia like my pick 
for for this category it it's it still has so much influence today so um my pick is the texas chainsaw massacre yeah um which i i I, the title alone probably indicates why it doesn't make one of these lists but it's it's hard not to shake just the influence and and not just like in terms of like the narrative and storytelling it's one of the the initial almost quintessential um early slasher movies although it's not that bloody or gory it's a lot of it's in your mind like if you go back and watch texas chainsaw massacre i'm not saying you should um but if if you want to it's it's all kind of the the roar of the chainsaw and and weird angles and close-ups of people screaming as they're being murdered it's the gore of it is almost in your mind so it's it's almost hitchcockian in a way um to think that it was done for a couple of thousand dollars essentially (laughs) You know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Um, the 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 last scene uh, in the uh, the dinner scene. You know, and it, 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 you read stories about shooting it and being in this hot house where there's no air conditioning because you need sound. Um, and so you're surrounded by all this meat that is degrading um, yeah. and <laughs> deteriorating. And you're on hour nineteen of a twenty six day sh- of a twenty six hour shoot. Um, you know, you're in the same blood-soaked clothes you've been wearing for a month, and because it's an independent production, you only have the one outfit. I mean, just the mythology of this thing alone. Um, somebody should make a movie about making this movie. And then on top of it all, it's you know, it has this grand place in the annals of indie cinema. Um, also, especially the indie cinema scene in Texas. Um, you know, Toby Hooper comes out of Austin. Austin is now like an epicenter for indie cinema. I mean, that's where Rodriguez, uh, Robert Rodriguez still uh, lives mm-hmm. and works. Richard uh, Linklater's from Richard there, Linklater, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, South by Southwest is still a major stop in terms of festivals in the year. So, yeah, it's it has this grand influence both in, in sort of film. We're still trying to make sequels to it. There was a sequel that came out last year. And we're still trying to make it a franchise and, and people are still borrowing from it and rather generously, like in the cases of something like Ty West X. So it's, um, it's impossible to, to escape the influence. I mean, especially since horror is now one of the major genres, um, at least if you're still interested in, in the cinema experience where it seems to be like these big epic movies and horror movies, that's what you go to the cinema to watch now. So, um, to not have Texas Chainsaw on the list seems like kind of a major oversight. All right. For sure. This, well, thank you. Uh, this, gets, <laughs> this brings us to the last category we're going to talk about, which is the new addition to the list we think is going to stand the test of time. So, Tim, what movie checks this box for you? Yeah, movie I think will stand the test of time, and I hope it does, is Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, mm-hmm. um, which debuted really high on the list number 24 and it's a timeless masterpiece that's set in a specific time and place it can't escape which is 1980s brooklyn and yes it's a a black movie but it's also a latino movie a latina movie an italian movie i think it shows the diversity of that spot during that time and it's about a group of people struggling to coexist uh, in this little neighborhood during the stifling heat of the summer, which only compounds the, the tension. And I think uh, Spike Lee does an excellent job. There's a lot of comedic moments in it. There's a lot of tension. And you can see it building as the movie goes on. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Spike Lee started in it himself. He does a great, great job playing Mookie, uh, the pizza delivery man. And uh, just a, it's just an excellent cast all around. Um, but it has all these, unfortunately, timeless issues. You have police brutality. You have racism, generational conflicts. You have gender wars. And then with the heat, you have Radio Rahim there with his boom box, which... <laughs> Maybe we'll date the movie, right? It's from the 80s, but... Well, public Enemy 2 kind of dates it, but... Yeah, Fight the Power he's playing, which uh, I really like. A lot of people see that as great music, and then, but then the Italian pizzeria with Danny Aiello, he doesn't see it the same way. He sees it as noise. So there's this conflict about people trying to live together in stressful times, in the heat of summer, and I think that Unfortunately, the heat of summer is just getting hotter and hotter because of the planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's not going anywhere. Um, yeah. And I think it, it just all conspires to s- set the whole neighborhood over its boiling point as it goes on and um, sort of an ambiguous ending too, right? There's the there's riots and then people seem to be, you know, um, somewhat forgiving each other but then maybe not and it's just it's just like life right there's a lot of ambiguity a lot of different sides uh and i i think it'll it'll stand the test of time and i like a lot of spike lee movies i like spike lee as a person i but i think this is to me his masterpiece um pretty early on i don't know if his second or third movie he did but i think it's his masterpiece and i'm glad it's on the list at number 24 uh, do the right thing is Spike Lee's fourth feature, by the way. Okay. No, after, yeah, after Joe's, uh, bed, Stewie barbershop, we cut heads. She's got to have it and uh, school days. So there you go. Yeah. Um, mine is kind of similar, more recent, uh, get out, which, uh, was yeah. kind of near the bottom of the list, but, um, I think, again, I guess a lot of my thoughts on, on me, my picks turn to influence and, um, Get Out. I'm not sure. Well, certainly Get Out has contributed to the rise of elevated horror. Uh, it certainly makes Jordan Peele uh, a brand unto himself, although neither us or Nope has sort of caught up to, um, at least yet, uh, who knows what might happen in the future in terms of sort of the the, the, the big appeal, the the um, continued appeal of, of Get Out, which uh, not only speaks to the white audience by just the, the simple allegory of it may, helps you understand racism in a way that you know even the most well-meaning academic lecture could not um but it also has deep meaning for black audiences who see their own experience in it and it's very hard to to have a movie that means something equally to white audiences and black audiences and i was thinking was making notes about this i was thinking about uh, a segment on the daily show and it was around 2015 and Roy Wood Jr. goes out and is talking to black people leaving the movie theater about like the movies because it was around Oscar time and he's like the movies that sort of matter to black audiences and they're talking about straight out of Compton uh, they're talking about you know Michael Jordan and Creed and this is the year of, the, of like the launch of the Oscar so white campaign where you had all of these movies that um 
you know, if, if it had been sort of like about white characters, so they probably would have gotten nominations. I mean, Creed famously, Sylvester Stallone gets an acting nomination from, from for Creed. Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson do not. Ryan Coogler does not as the director and the producer and the writer of the movie. So it, it just shows like there's, there's there is a big gulf. There is a big difference in what in what matters to these two cultures or these two races culturally. And Get Out is the rare crossover hit and so because of that i think it, it's going to have a long long shelf life and i wouldn't be entirely surprised to sort of see it start to rise in the ranks as because i i think a lot of people probably felt conflicted about putting it on on the list um because it's 2017 and there are a couple of like recent there was parasite is on the list uh portrait of a lady on fire is on the list so I, I think people are trying to sort of be more active in terms of what kind of representation they're putting on the list and, and trying to peel back some of this recency bias. So I think by the time we get to 2032, maybe some of that will have gone away. But I think Get Out will probably stand, and I think it will probably rank even higher as we get sort of further and further away from it. So I agree. I almost picked it for for mine, and I think it's – a near perfect movie really. Um, and mm -hmm. it's so economical in the way it, yeah. all the scenes work together. Right. And it's really funny. I watched it for a second time recently. It's super funny. Yeah. Um, and the horror's great. Uh, just the psychological nature of it and his move. I've enjoyed his movies since then, uh, Jordan Peele, but there are a lot of ideas being thrown out there and mm -hmm. get out to me. He's like, yeah, I, I could almost say like a perfect movie. And I hope he uh, continues to continues to make interesting films. But I that one might is probably going to stand the test of time. And uh, I hope uh, his career continues on. It almost makes me think a, a little bit, but I think Get Out's much better than The Sixth Sense, for instance. But like mm. M. Night Shyamalan, right? He had The Sixth Sense, which everyone's most people saw and said wow that's amazing and then mm -hmm. there's been really sort of love it or hate it for a lot of his features since then some people <laughs> swear by certain films yeah. and i feel like jordan peele's been kind of like that in his, his last two they're sort of like yeah sort of get mixed reviews some people swear by them they say it's this is better than get out this is um but i think get out is it was just a perfect movie at a perfect time for him yeah yeah. Well, speaking of scary funny, we're going to dive into the world of white noise. After the break, you are listening to end credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. These crowds were assembled in the name of death, 
They were there to attend tributes to the dead. But not the already dead. The future dead. The living dead amongst us. Processions, songs, speeches, dialogues with the dead. Recitations of the names of the dead. They were there to see pyres and flaming wheels. Thousands of flags dipped in salute. Thousands of uniform mourners. There were ranks and squadrons. Elaborate backdrops. Blood banners and black dress uniforms. Crowds came to form a shield against their own dying. To become a crowd is to keep out death. To break off from the crowd is to risk death as an individual. To face dying alone. Okay, that was a clip from White Noise. It's the new absurdist comedy drama from writer and director Noah Baumbach, and it stars Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, Lars Eidinger, Rafi Cassidy, Sam Nivola, May Nivola, and Don Cheadle. How best to describe this movie? Um, well, it's based on a novel by Don DeLillo, written in 1985. Uh, widely considered unfilmable uh, and Noah Baumbach said challenge accepted um, <laughs> I don't know I, I I haven't read it so I, I don't know uh, I haven't read it no. but you know just the way Noah Baumbach seemed to sort of unwind it um, I, I do kind of wonder what quality sort of makes it unfilmable if you read it for yourself uh, I think I'll start here and maybe you'll you'll agree with me. I think there's half a really, really good movie that's kind of like a parody or a satire of like disaster capital and disaster politics. Um, and then there's a second half of the movie that um, is about this, this internal drama with this couple played by Driver and Gerwig uh, that I'm not entirely sure works. And then it wraps up with a dance sequence at the end that... It, with, with, with a modern song, a new song by LCD Sound Systems, the song is fine. Uh, the dance number, I think, is lazy. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, I sort of disagree. I think I, <laughs> I like I like all the elements of it. I just mm. don't think it, it coalesces into you know something at the end there. I think the the I do agree. The I'll stay with the positive first. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's like in chapters in a way, right? Mm. Um, and you can tell that it, it's from a novel. So I like the stuff. Okay, so there's like three, I would say th maybe three or four, but the first stage is about higher learning and um, Adam Driver uh, as Jack Gladney, who's a professor of Hitler studies yep. at a university. A surprisingly and, popular field. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, uh, and, and they, I've read like in the eighties, uh, this was a good satire on the specializations happening in universities, but I think that still happens. Like I see news yeah. stories where people are like, Oh, there's a new Madonna course in California and it's like national news or something. So mm. I, I did like the sort of satirical approach to universities, higher learning with the Hitler studies uh, by Jack Gladney, um, Adam Driver, and I really liked uh, the Don Cheadle character, who wanted to do his own 
specialized course on Elvis. Yep. Yep. And there's this very odd scene where they're doing like competing lectures. Um, (laughs) You have to to say the topic of the lecture, which is who loved their mother more, Elvis or Hitler? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who loved their mother more? Yeah. Elvis or Hitler. So for fans of the Elvis movie, and I'm a fan of the Elvis movie and my dad's big Elvis buff. um, (laughs) Might be weird to compare Elvis to Hitler, but that's kind of what they're doing in that. And Mm -hmm. uh, competing lectures and, and uh, Don Cheadle's just, he's really, I think he's hilarious. And he's great. He's great. And his obsession with Elvis and then like car crashes as well. What car, <laughs> what watching car crashes on TV or in movies tell us about ourselves and um, that they're actually comforting or something. And car, just, car crash as secular optimism. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's just wild. Like, just wild ideas that you know are exaggerated are absurdist but that have a grain of truth to them too right and i had i thought i had a lot of fun with those scenes Mm -hmm. and then there's the shift right with Mm -hmm. the uh airborne toxic event Mm -hmm. um and what i really liked there was adam driver is the dad Right. He's got his family there. Um, He's Jack and his wife uh, played by Greta Gerwig and their children. They're they're seeing like this this smoke in the distance and they're like, what is that? And then they're hearing on the news. Oh, don't worry. It's going to not going to pass. And then I just love Jack, uh, Jack's character, how he just tries to downplay it all. And I think it's fitting for the age of COVID or the age when any, any sort of disaster happens. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, um, the wind's going to blow the cloud, but it'll probably, probably, it won't come here. It doesn't come in this direction usually. Yeah. yeah. The, and then the wind will just, blow south and everyone's like, how do you know that? I just do. <laughs> I just do. Let's just, let's just eat our uh, TV dinners or whatever here. Let's yeah. just, yeah. when are we eating dinner? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, let's just eat. And then it's like, okay. Oh, it can come. It can come in our direction. Oh yeah, of course it can. I, I you know, everyone knows it could come, but it's not going to come right in our neighborhood. And it's just like uh, these levels until it becomes a full fledged, what the news are calling a toxic airborne event. Mm-hmm. And they're one of the, everyone has to evacuate, and they don't even hear that, right? Did they say we have to leave? I don't know. And yeah, they get they get yeah. in their car, and it it just I think it it it's fitting for the times, even though this, the novel's written in the eighties with yeah. stuff like COVID, but like with the natural disasters that we're going through, especially precipitated by climate change, the fact that you know people they had to go to this, the yeah, whatever this refugee camp essentially. refugee camp like the yeah. stadium or something they all had to to live in, in until the until the all clear was announced and i i think it, it works really well and i really like the humor in that and then the third part where it was the relationship like the the marriage and mm. the problems there and the pills that, like the, the the pills that'll have you live forever and the all the death talk. I yeah. actually didn't mind that. And then I, but then I just thought it was disjointed and lazy. And this might have to do with the original novel. Cause I, I saw another Don DeLillo movie he did called game six, mm. um, where it kind of ends in this sort of weird way. So this ends with the confrontation in the motel room. And I don't think that really works. 
And it seems like that character, the scientist, he's like talking in advertising slogans. And I felt like that should have been introduced earlier in the film, like to talk about like TV, like they talk about car crashes on TV, but talk about TV and what it's doing to our brains or whatever. They could have talked a little bit more about that. Um, And it it would have made more sense, made more sense at the end. So I think it's disjointed at the end, but all in all, I really liked it. I thought it was a really intelligent film, really funny. It, imperfect film Mm. the dancing in the grocery (laughs) store i enjoyed it's kind of a lazy device right to do like an end credit sequence like that but i enjoyed it i liked the music i liked how much fun they were having i liked how it was choreographed how one person in the aisles doing one dance somebody on the other aisle doing another and there had been scenes in the grocery store before and grocery stores like this place of comfort for them, right? Like they take comfort and consumerism, I suppose, right? They go there when all the, all these problems are happening, they go there to get their deals on breakfast cereal and, and stuff. And I think, which is still true for today, you know, Mm. Um, in COVID people took refuge going to the grocery store. So it, it fits with, it fits, it fits with these times. And I enjoyed that at the end. So I can see like, I can see sort of issues with it, but I really liked the film overall. And uh, I thought it was funny. I liked the acting and I I even liked the dance sequence at the end credits, even though it sort of tacked on. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) The the thing that galls me about the the dance sequence is just it it lingers on the, the, the this wide shot of the checkouts. And you can see that everybody's just kind of like, there's this one guy you can see in the border bottom of the screen. Who's, um taking the toilet paper off the belt lifting it up in the air waving it around and then putting it back on the belt and re- and repeating he repeats this it's like I the was, harlem shake or something yeah i wasn't counting but he was doing this at least 40 times and i'm like i'm just thinking to myself it's like bombach off screen going like keep lifting that toilet paper and like you bag man keep throwing the bags in the air because there's there's a, right next to the toilet paper guy there's a kid bagging groceries but he doesn't bag a single grocery he just takes the bag out you know flips it open and then throws it up in the air and yeah. it's just you know i've got it i've got it like why are you like why are you giving these people res- repetitive stress injuries but um <laughs> and it was at an amp supermarket so there's a blast from the past right so blast from was, the past yeah, yeah no it's it's interesting and i like i like the supermarket it is it really seems like bombax borrowing heavily from anderson in this like i'm gonna do something big and personal and immaculately designed like anderson um because the house is kind of like that the the family home is kind of like it has this kind of particular design to it um the the uh the grocery store too everything's kind of like perfectly lined up by color um the 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 a hospital run by the atheist nuns that like, there's a definite anderson vibe when they end up there yeah uh, it's 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 got that vibe to it. it's like bombax again it's like kind of this trend is like netflix writing blank checks to great directors it's like oh you're gonna give me all this money i'm gonna use every single last penny just you watch me yeah uh, which is fine i'm perfectly okay with that uh the thing about the movie though 
I, I like the movie overall. I just want to say that. I, I just think the second half kind of drags. It kind of meanders. Um, and it introduces a bunch of stuff that I that's kind of there in the first half in the background. Um, but then becomes like the focus in the second half. And we never we never talk about the airborne toxic event again. Uh, except no. that it's it's you know, because Except Jack's been exposed, right? And and, and and it's never entirely clear what he's been exposed to, or if anyone is going to like follow up with him about the exposure. Because <laughs> yeah. um, you know they're at the refugee camp. It's like, hey, anyone who was outside during the rain, like, come and see these medics. And the medics like, oh, you're outside. Oh, that's too bad for you. You might die in 15 years. But then again, we won't know until you die. <laughs> and <laughs> there's there's something. Again, given everything like COVID related and like and you know the long COVID and what are the implications of long COVID and um, even if you just had COVID for a short while, are there any long term effects to this? We still don't know. Um, there's there's way to sort of play up that ambiguity that I wish it would have been more interesting if they had kept up that thread in the second half rather than bringing in this whole thing about the the pill that Babette is taking and how she's securing her supply and how that sort of pushes Jack over the edge. And um, although I, what, what I do appreciate is that there's this inherited message in the film that uh, because Jack is an intellectual and uh, an academic and Babette's trying to, you know, appeal to him at that level too. Like th- they have this whole conversation in bed before the airborne toxic event, how like they're, they're kind of like past death, this whole thing about worrying about death and, you know the real the real situation is like which one of them is going to die first, and which one of them will be the more pronouncedly impacted yeah. if they're the surviving spouse. Yeah, <laughs> and- it kind of shows the hypocrisy because they're like, oh, I hope I die before you because I can't live without you. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it's like, no, really, they want to live forever. They want right. Yeah. It's 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 so over the top, and if and uh, you know the the novel and the film too are putting out like, well, they're hypocrites, and you know when when they're faced with like actual possibility of of death, they will you know f- preferably throw everything out of the lifeboat to <laughs> to live as long as possible, including Jack who goes to the hotel room or this guy is selling drugs that make you stop worrying about death, and um, it's 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 it's. But at that point, the metaphor really starts getting rubbed in your face. But yeah, it's very repetitive. They talk about it so much. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the stuff—the stuff like the lead up to the, when they have to evacuate and when they come outside—and it's clear like they're the last ones in the neighborhood that are leaving town. They're like, "Oh no! Like, what is? Everyone else got out of here before <laughs> we did." And yeah, uh, you know, the all all of that stuff is great. Like Jack constantly having like well maybe it won't come this way or like the winds go south they don't go north what are we even talking about when's dinner gonna be ready yeah he's like the eternal optimist like they get like they're like he's like it'll be okay once we get on the freeway here yeah (laughs) and then it's just all jammed up and he's like it'll be okay once we get past this point yeah and there's something so pointed with heinrich the 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 eldest son or maybe he's their only son come to think of it i think he's their only son no the will the baby's called wilson so maybe he's the oldest son um He's he's at the he's in the attic with binoculars looking at the cloud and it looks like the cloud never moves but there's all this talk about is the cloud coming this way is it getting closer and you know you, I I think a lot about those early days of COVID when you're hearing about now the this many people in China have died and now COVID is in Italy and now it's in UK and you can yeah. sort of see the COVID cloud get closer yeah and everybody's like oh it's not gonna happen here we're okay yeah. yes exactly yeah. that's exactly right. 
And then there's this line that keeps getting repeated about how family is misinformation. And I guess this also plays into the title of the, the movie, White Noise, because th- th- there's so much of that in a lot of these sequences where the kids are talking and they're talking over each other and then they get on one topic and then they get on the other topic and Jack's struggling to keep up. While he also has an eye on the bed and the radio's playing and it, so much of it is white noise. And then the whole family is misinformation vibe. There's a scene in the, the refugee camp where Heinrich is surrounded by adults who are listening to him like talk just like absolute conspiratorial nonsense. And, yeah. and Jack goes over to Babette and says, well, Heinrich's really coming into his own, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like he's talking tinfoil and nonsense to grown adults. Because <laughs> he seems... Yeah, I was buying it as an audience viewer. I'm like, he, this kid knows his stuff, right? But uh, <laughs> He's got his yeah. finger on the pulse. I mean, it, it, reality is, if this was you know, fully updated for, for today, you'd be listening to Alex Jones and, you know, the, the Western standard and, and all these, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty smart and it, have, having it set in the past like that allows you to sort of create like, a, allows you to sort of divorce yourself from how it's a period piece. That's not a period piece because it's set in the past. It's not set in our times, but it's very much speaking to our times. And a lot of that is super smart and I could have sort of luxuriated in this um this this part of, of of the story for a while. It's 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 like after that when they get home and everything's quote unquote back to normal. And you're like, oh, I guess I mean the, the metaphor there is clear too. We've all been desperately trying to get quote unquote back to normal for the last three years. But yeah, um, and sort of like short term memory too, like short term memory. Like, That's right. Yeah, like people have it and it's like, oh, this was awful. And then Two months later, yeah, you know, well, that, I just had it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy, but I mean, um, yeah, it's you know, this movie. You were talking earlier about how you know, three hours, um, or how two and a half hours feels like you know, people maybe a little hesitant to see a two and a half hour movie at this point, like two hours and twenty minutes. Whew, that's a sprint. Like in these days, so. so many movies. Yeah, like a lot of the critically acclaimed ones this year, they're all at least two twenty. It seems like. Yeah, yeah. But this one felt like a sprint, and I and I think a lot of that is owed to uh, Adam Driver, who's so good, is so deadpan, but he he's also, um, you know, he's one of these class. Like I I love all the scenes of the like the intellectual class at the university, like just posing yeah. these like. <laughs> questions <laughs> um, and he doesn't speak german right he's taking german um, lessons on the side secretly and you're his right. name is son heinrich you just mentioned that i was just thinking of that yeah he's like that is so perfect that he's he's an expert on hitler studies and doesn't know a word of german and he has to learn german so he can give this german address at the big hitler studies conference it's it's i mean all of that is so perfect but uh yeah like i i I didn't. I don't get hung up on sort of the, the slog at the in the back half of the movie, um, because the first hour just hooked me in so completely. So, um, yeah, it, it's 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 definitely a good watch. I think. I, I think it's worth. I think it's worth seeing. I I think so too. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, Noah, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Hmm. Yeah, they. They good work. Team. I think they work really well together as a team, and I'm looking forward to Barbie this year. <laughs> <laughs> that's the craziest thing in the world like like the follow-up no well i mean no bombach didn't direct 
but you know his follow-up to this is to co-write barbie with his wife who's directing and what was greta's last film now that i'm thinking about it little women yeah, that's right that's yeah. another bizarre thing to go from little women to bar actually to go from ladybird to little women to barbie um this is the- and then she's gonna well she's writing a movie uh a snow white movie disney snow white mm-hmm. so she's writing the live action snow white remake of snow white for disney doesn't that beat all with rachel ziegler as snow white and gal gadot as the evil queen well hell now i want to see it there you go <laughs> i'm gonna be first in line for barbie though Looking oh that's gonna to- that's gonna be a good day because barbie and oppenheimer open on the same day so a lot of people <laughs> talk about <laughs> double feature right? double feature double feature that's right a lot of people are, a lot of people are talking about that double feature um yeah no it's it's interesting like it to get back to white noise um i i might be interested in going back and reading the book now it's like what makes this unfilmable because it it does seem very accessible um it it does it's like the performances are very engaging like the trifecta here uh driver gerwin cheetle all good and it's maybe the best danny elfman score i've heard in a while I can't remember the last time he really wowed me with anything, but there's, and, and maybe this has to do with like sort of like the the subversion of of the movie too. But there, there's the scene where he, Jack gets out at the as they're trying to escape the the cloud, where he gets out to fill the car with gas, and there's these like shades of the Ed Wood score with all these. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, the the Thaleman is I guess that that's what that instrument is. Um, it's just so perfect and. Um, I wish I wish the movie had I mean maybe they could have chopped off an hour and <laughs> made it a bit punchier, but yeah. Um you, you know, Bombax kind of earned his indulgences too. And um there's there's definitely kind of an indulgence with this, but it's an it's I I I, I found it very accessible still. I did too, yeah. And I think uh the word unfilmable is used too often. It's like <laughs> what does That's that mean? Right. You know, but yeah. I know they said that I remember about naked lunch and then uh, yeah. David Cronenberg did it. That was the big thing. And yeah. I can kind of see that reading that. I, I have a feeling this is nothing like that, but I haven't read the book, but yeah. I'm sure it's like absurd and, and comedy and a lot of shifts in tone and locations and stuff. But yeah. I think you've got a skillful enough filmmaker. They can, they can adapt anything and they can, you know, make it more their own if they have to. Right. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he, I guess he was very faithful to this. So is mm-hmm. what a lot of people say. So kudos mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It's a good sit. Yeah. Um, as they say, uh, well, that brings us to the end of our show. We hope you liked it. We hope you stay with us all year long and you can stay connected to us at our website. That is endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download this and other episodes from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And speaking of that Spotify app, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on this show. Just search End Credits on CFRU on Spotify. We're also on social media at Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Tim, where can people fill your DMs with a white noise, as it were? <laughs> Go to it. Uh, flash in the deadpan. Yeah, message me any of your favorite films or... Uh, what you think there should be a course on there's hitler there's elvis <laughs> what do you think what what else do you think there should be how about baumbach studies 
It probably is somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> probably. It's probably some like film seminar. Yeah. Uh, I will be back here on CFRU for news and politics studies on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson and check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for the continuing adventures of End Credits. And we will see you then. <laughs>